other religious gods had become uh, brought into the culture, and they built their own temple uh, apart from Jerusalem for worship, and they started marrying outsiders. And, um, and so the Jews thought that this was like polluting their land. Uh, the Jews considered them to be like half-breeds or mongrels, and um, they really did whatever they could to avoid them because, you know, they, they were despised. But this is why this passage is so remarkable to me. Because if we read in verse 3, it says, So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. There, could have, there is a full stop, but it could have stayed a full stop there. But the next verse says, He had to go through Samaria. But now here's what's interesting. Most Jews didn't, in fact, have to go through Samaria in order to get where they wanted to go. They would actually bypass it because they didn't want to have to mix with the Samaritans. The reason he had to go is not because that was the only way to get there. The reason he had to go is because he had a divine appointment with a woman whose name we will never know. So even though it was not geographically necessary for Jesus, it was completely necessary. So imagine, he stopped by Jacob's well. It was the hottest time of the day. We're having a lovely heat wave at the moment. If you think you've been walking in the dust and the sun is pouring down on you and you're sweaty and hot and thirsty and you come to this well, Um, Are you in the best mood you've ever been in when you're hot, tired, thirsty, you know? Have you ever heard that expression, hangry, you know, where you're hungry and it just makes you kind of grumpy? One could expect that Jesus might have been a little bit like just over it, you know? He sends his disciples away so that, and they go off to get some food, um, and Jesus is left alone at this well. But he wasn't there long because he was waiting. He was waiting for his very important appointment. Along comes this woman. Maybe he saw the dust kicking up by her feet as she was walking. Maybe he saw her in the distance and thought, oh, there she is, the one I've been waiting for. And she gets closer, and she sees him at this well. And, you know, it's noon, According to those customs, we can assume that part of the reason why she was coming there at that time of the day is maybe she didn't fit into the normal society. Most of the women would want to make it a social occasion. They would go earlier in the day before the sun had reached its peak heat. And then they would talk about the things of their lives and share life and do, you know, sort of the community uh, chats and gossip together. But she wasn't included in that. Now, maybe... She was an introvert and wanted to avoid the people. Maybe, maybe she wasn't accepted. Maybe she was rejected. Maybe she was one of those ones that they were gossiping about. We don't actually know. But we assume. So she's nameless. She's identified only by her ethnicity. But this just highlights the radical lengths that Jesus would go to in order to see the one. It makes me think of the story that Mike shared the other day about Sam. Remember the story where God disrupted the entire meeting, stopped it, so that he could have an encounter with a young teenage boy named Sam. 
because he was after the one. Here, Jesus goes out of his way so that he could have an encounter with a different kind of Sam, a Samaritan. And um, he's radical. He's radical in his desire and his, his attempts to engage and to meet with us. So he crossed many barriers to talk to this woman. Not only geography, not only ethnic, but religious, gender, and social. So it would have been very unusual for a man like Jesus to address a woman on his own. Um, And if she was somebody who had been, who, who would have been seen as unclean or, you know, not of the right standing, it would have compromised him. But he chose to meet with her anyways. You would think that maybe she would have been gentle and hospitable towards this Jesus who, or this man who was reaching out and trying to engage with her. But she actually comes across as quite suspicious and self-protective, where she replies, but you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Like, why are you talking to me? What do you want? And why are you asking me for a drink? It's as if she's going, um, hey, buddy, are you not aware of the barriers between us? Are you not aware of the reasons like why you shouldn't be talking to me? But perhaps there was another reason. Perhaps she had been rejected so often that that's just what she had come to expect was rejection. And so you know what? I'm going to reject you before you can reject me. Have you ever had experiences like that? Where it's just like, I don't want to have to deal with somebody else, you know, thinking I'm not good enough. Or somebody else not noticing me. Or somebody else saying something that's going to hurt me. So I'll just put my wall up and, and um, then at least I feel like I'm in control. But Jesus, he responded with acceptance he responded by showing her her value. He offers a hint about this incredible gift that he's gone out of his way to deliver to her at a very specific point, at a very specific time, in a very specific town, to a very specific person. If only you knew the gift that God has for you and who you were speaking to me, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Living water, that was her deepest, deepest need. We could think that her needs might have been to have better standing in her community. Her needs might have been to, um, you know, to, to, to fit in. Her biggest need was living water. But she doesn't get it the first time around. She returns to the physical. She's like, but you don't have a rope. You don't have a bucket. Like, this well's really deep. How, how do you think I'm supposed to get water to you? Um, she was looking with, with the eyes of the natural, but Jesus was engaging with her, with the, the, the spiritual or the supernatural. Instead of getting frustrated with her blindness, Jesus continues to teach her. And this is radical, Because rabbis in those days were not allowed to teach women. But he made a point to go out and meet with a woman and to teach her. So he begins to teach her about how the spiritual world works. 
He connects with her. He treats her with respect. He is fully and completely present to her. Can you imagine what that must have felt like to her? You know, if she's going to the well every day alone, alone, isolated, no one to talk to, and here's somebody who shows up completely engaged and present and not judging, it must have been quite overwhelming. I wonder if she wasn't quite sure how to respond, what she was supposed to say, even what she was supposed to feel. Have you ever had those experiences where it's like you don't know whether to smile, laugh, cry, like you're just kind of, your face is doing all sorts of like twitchy things because you're not even sure what emotion you're supposed to be feeling? Can you imagine how like unusual this must have been for her? So she gets curious. She gets curious because he's not repulsed by her. He's not rejecting her. This is different. I want to know more. So she takes a risk, and she opens up some opportunity for connection, for engagement. And eventually, she plucks up the courage to ask. She asks about this water that will eternally quench her thirst. But instead of just going, okay, here you go, here it is, Jesus asks her a very important question. He says, or or, or gives her an instruction, go and get your husband. And this, this is where many of us get stuck. This is where we go, ah, here it is. Here it is now. This is where he's going to confront her with the truth. Um, But I wonder if what we actually mean is, oh, right, now he's going to confront her with her sin point out her brokenness. And, um, and this is where we've made some dangerous assumptions. And I want to ask you to separate what you think you've heard, maybe in um, other talks that you've read or just kind of, you know when you fill in the blanks or you think you know a story so well that you just kind of, you, you kind of add to it, things that might not even be there? So I want to highlight some of these dangerous assumptions which some of us may or may not have put on this Samaritan woman. So if we look at what the text actually says, it helps us to to be able to lay some of these preconceived ideas that we may have had aside. First, for some reason, it's like, oh, she's going to lie. She doesn't want to tell the truth um, about her marital status or her reality but she actually answers truthfully. It's not like he catches her and then she backtracks and says, well, actually, um, you know, I don't have a husband. He asks her and she speaks the truth right from the get-go. And he acknowledges that truth. She wasn't sidestepping. She wasn't playing games. We don't even know the tone of voice. It might have been that she was quite confident in saying, no, I don't have a husband. She was honest. The second assumption is that Jesus condemns her sin. A lot of people have actually mixed up this story with the uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery, and we kind of add in this idea that Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. Have you ever thought of that? Like kind of getting them mixed up and adding stuff in? But he never condemns her. We often build ourselves up on the sins of other people. 
Do you know what that's called? Comparison. Comparison. Oh, look at that one over there. Do you know what that one's up to? No. Well, at least, you know, I'm a sinner, but at least I haven't done that. You know? That we can look at other people's, what we see as other people's sin, to kind of go, well, I'm not as bad as that one. Um, And we put our condemnation, our judgment, onto people. But he never, ever says to her, you have sinned. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. Um, He doesn't even say, you're right. You are living in sin. You are fornicating. You, he doesn't. What, is, what does scripture say? You are right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't married, even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. You certainly spoke the truth. So she speaks truth to Jesus, and what does she receive in return? not condemnation. You're right. And so it opens her up for more because not only does she speak the truth to him, but he continues to tell her more truth about her story. And suddenly her eyes are open because how could this complete stranger sitting on the side of this well, who I've never met before, who's a Jew who's supposed to help me, not only know the truth about my current situation, but can also tell me about my history too. Surely this man is a prophet, which is what she, how she re- responds to him. The third question, or the third assumption, is that, you know, she must have been, you know, she must have been promiscuous if she had been divorced so many times and been married so many times. Where in, where in this passage does it say that she was divorced? It doesn't. You have been married five times. So I'm going to throw out some what-ifs. What if she had been widowed? We don't know. What if, like Tamar, she had been married and her husband died? So like the culture, you marry the next brother, and then he dies. What if she wasn't a bad wife or a promiscuous woman or someone who went out and just got divorces at the drop of a hat, what if she had actually lost people that she really loved? Also, remember the times a woman held no power. They had to walk behind their husbands. They couldn't be uh, used as a witness. They held no legal rights. They couldn't own property. And they could not get a divorce. The only one who could issue a divorce or seek a divorce was the husband. So actually, maybe she had been divorced, but she didn't initiate it. She was rejected. She was rejected. Now imagine either being widowed, and again, in those days without a husband, you can't own property. What happens to you? You have to rely on your family to take you in, Or you have to rely on another marriage because you needed a man to be able to provide for you because you couldn't take care of yourself on your own as as a woman. So we made assumptions about her character. 
that actually aren't put in Scripture. Not so? So what if part of the reason she was at the well wasn't because of sexual sin, but because she was rejected, abandoned, isolated? How would Jesus look upon her? Mercy, compassion, I see your brokenness. I see the pain that you have been through. And I have good news. I have good news. You never have to thirst for belonging again. You never have to thirst for a sense of, am I loved? Because I have something that will quench that thirst. I have eternal life for you, eternal belonging, eternal love. How attractive must that have been? To this woman. So perhaps she had been used and abused and thrown away and become an outcast through rejection. And Jesus wanted her to know, I don't reject you. We often project onto Jesus our, our skewed perceptions about how the world works and how Jesus thinks in response. Um, we, we try to filter Jesus' motives through our limited understanding. So let me give you an example. If you read the little bio about me that's out there for the list of the seminars today, it says, Karen is married to Gavin, they have three sons, and live in South Africa. Now, based on that limited inf- bit of information, what does it say about my character, about the quality of my marriage, about my hopes, my dreams, my heartbreaks, my motives. Nothing. Nothing. But one could make assumptions. Now, here I am standing on a platform. So based on my position, one would assume, okay, maybe she's an okay person. You know, maybe, maybe she's seen as a leader, seeing as she's holding a microphone. Um, maybe she's trustworthy. You know, an assumption based on where I'm positioned. But what if I was the one who was sitting out at the well at noon? We still don't know what her dreams were, what her heartbreaks were, what the motivations of her heart were. But Jesus did. So, um, so Jesus shows mercy He doesn't condemn, he opens conversation, and the woman recognizes that, wait, this guy has the answer. He didn't come to condemn, but in fact, Jesus came to save. She is astounded, and she recognizes him as a prophet. And he tells her that he sees her, he knows her story, and he values her even in the midst of her rejection and brokenness. And he gives her this life-restoring water. And... um, I think sometimes we've primarily thought that that the problem that was being highlighted was sin, but the problem that has been highlighted is her thirst. It's her thirst, and that is something that we all have. We all have a thirst to need to meet with the one who can give us the living water. So he treated her with respect, his mercy and love, and spoke gently, non-judgmentally, confronted her or, or helped, her, helped her feel safe enough to speak truth. And um, 
And he took time with her questions. So often we want to rush people, hey? We don't want to sit and take time and work with their questions and hear what they have to say and then explain it in a way that they can understand and grab hold. We like to talk at people, but not necessarily with people. And Jesus engaged with her questions, even though he was still thirsty because he didn't get his water, but he took the time and he engaged with her. Then he answers her questions about worship. And I think it's really interesting that he said in spirit and in truth. You know, that, that the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. Why not spirit and peace? Or spirit and joy? Or spirit and prosperity? But for her to be able to worship in spirit and truth meant that she was free to not have to hide anything before God. What a gift, hey? So when we come forward and we worship God in spirit and in truth, it's going, here I am, all of me. You can see me. You can see into my deepest places, my heart, my motivations, my dreams, my brokenness, in spirit and in truth. How beautiful, hey? that it was through truth that she was able to, to open up and to be able to understand a new revelation about worship. So she could be honest, fully exposed, and still know that she was accepted and loved. And all she had to do was accept this free gift of love that, God was, that Jesus was extending to her. And there's a bit of hesitancy still um, until Jesus gives her truth in return. Because you must be a prophet, or are you a prophet? But then he reveals to her, it's the first time he reveals his true self to this rejected woman, that he is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the one that they've heard about and been waiting for. So she brings him truth, and she receives truth in return. Don't you just love the beauty of the give and take, hey? Um, So he exposes his true self, and he's putting himself at risk for her rejection. Because she could say, don't be ridiculous. Or, listen, I, I just, you're crazy. And she could have walked away. She could have walked away like the rich young ruler did. So he opened himself up to be accepted or rejected from her because that's how relationships work. They're not forced, but we enter into them in vulnerability. So can you imagine what this must have been like for her Um, to hear these words, these words that are just so powerful and undeniably special, and he shared them with her, with her. So throughout the Gospels, it really is rare to find Jesus declaring his true true self, his true position. Um, In fact, the disciples often tried to drag it out of him, and yet she was worth him telling who he truly was. She was worth it. Then when the disciples came back, they're looking at this and going, like, what do you think Jesus is doing? But he doesn't, they don't actually outright ask him, but I'm sure they were a little bit confused 
Or maybe they were just going, oh, there's Jesus going at it again. Um, but they don't interfere with what, with what was going on between Jesus and this woman. But in this moment, and her, the lights come on, and she understands who she's talking to. She leaves her jar and goes running back to her town. She leaves the source of, in the natural, what could quench her thirst. She leaves that and runs because now she knows she won't ever have to be thirsty again. Um, And she tells people, come, come, come and see this man who told me all that I ever did. She runs back to her town, exposing herself, risking being seen, going, hey, look, look, you know know me, look, look. Most of us, uh, I'm one of those people who, um, I actually hate the spotlight. Um, I'm I'm usually the one hiding in the back somewhere. Uh, I don't like to always be seen. You know, it's, it's, it can be uncomfortable. Um, and yet, she was compelled. She was compelled to risk being seen because she couldn't keep it to herself because it was too good. It was too good. She was filled with the joy of being fully known and embraced. So she knew that the change of, that love and grace had made in her life and that was bubbling up. She was experiencing that what the living water could do inside of her. And I'm sure people saw the change and was like, that can't be her, can it? No, wait, something must have happened. Because I can imagine, you know, she might have walked through town with her head down and kind of trying to make herself small instead of yelling and going, hey, hey, guys, come, come. And so I would have been curious. Um, And so they started coming. They started coming. Now, remember right at the beginning when when, when it says he had to go to Samaria? Now, he chose to go to meet with her, but he didn't have to stay. But because Jesus is who Jesus is, when they asked him, when they begged him, please stay and tell us more, he didn't go, oh, you know, these Samaritans. He said, okay. So he he put himself out of his way to stay an extra two days to share with the rest of the town or people from the town. And, um, and so they, too, were able to encounter this living water. And so this rejected woman, who was, by the way, still living with a man who was not her husband, just a thought, um, became the first evangelist. And um, living water brought her out of isolation, brought her out of rejection, brought her out of the shadows, and transformed her life. But also, she became a conduit of transformation in the lives of other people. It says in verse 42 that, um, Then they, the, the townspeople, said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. This is what the power of testimony does. When we share our story and it sparks curiosity in others, then they want to know and find out. And so then they get a testimony. 
You know, our stories are so powerful. Our stories, our stories have the power to bring transformation. So what is life-changing for the woman is that she has become entirely known. And this, this has enabled her to become not only fully known to him, but to her community as well. The story is about being able to begin to see who he is and being given a gift that, um, of truth that leads to real worship. Worshiping in spirit and truth, where we are fully known because we have a God that is fully known and reveals himself to us. This makes me think, if you look back in Genesis 16, of another woman who found herself in a place of despair beside a well. Her name was Hagar. She was abused, rejected, and alone. And in her distress, she had a divine appointment and became the first person and the only person to give God a name, El Roy. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. There was something so powerful in being seen and encountering God. So with the time that we have left, I want you to break into some small groups, two, three, four people, um, and I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that I'd like for you to, to share with one another. And the first one is, what brings you to the well? What brings you to the well? What keeps you coming back to things that don't actually satisfy? You know, what are those things that are holding you back or, or where you, you're trying to get that need met? So what brings you to the well? The second one, the second question is, what would happen if you truly knew that you belonged, that you had no fear of rejection, and that you could be completely transparent and live love? What would happen? How would your life look? Okay. So if you can take 10, 10 minutes or so and just chat about that with yourselves. So I'd like to encourage you as you carry on sharing um, to feel free to pray for one another as well. Um, that obviously being vulnerable with one another can stir some things up and just, yeah, pray, pray into the things that have been shared and, and just bless one another. Okay, so if we can just, I'm just going to wrap, close off with, with a prayer. Um, but please feel free to continue sharing with each other. Uh, but for those that, that are done, then you're free to go. But I thank you, Lord, that you are the God who sees us and that, um, that you, you open yourself up for us to meet with you. 
and you reveal yourself right back to us. And so I pray that as we leave this place, we will go out with the confidence to be seen because we know the one who sees us. And so, yeah, help us to just grab hold of your living water and to trust that you are the one who quenches our deepest thirst. In Jesus' name, amen.